0: Ladies and gents, I am headed on a Russian oligarch tour of London. Was this all a strategy for the oligarchs to sort of build influence here in the UK? I think the evidence is pretty clear that in some cases it was. We know that some of it is washed up in the UK. We know that some of it is is funding information wars and possibly manipulating elections in the United States.
1: One Hyde Park is kleptocrat central. I used to say, can I just go sit in the lobby of One Hyde Park and see who comes down the elevator?
2: (laughs) Billions of dollars of stolen taxpayer money makes its way around the world without any of us ever knowing. It's a question of whether
0: the influence is being used try to soften up the responses of Western democracies towards the actions of the Russian
2: state. The money is used to buy extravagant lifestyles, property, influence, and sometimes for much more nefarious activities.
1: Evil thrives when good men do nothing. You need the people to speak up. There are people behind the scenes working to keep me from testifying.
0: People actually use the money they get from bribery to build private militant militias to kill people. We have to be asking ourselves, what is the wash of this money doing? The oligarchs have $800 million yachts, but you can just imagine what they've done with that money politically. This is A Nation for Thieves.
1: I'm
2: Justin Shankro, and we're looking into the secret corrupt dealings of kleptocrats around the world through the eyes of my new bestie, Indiana Jones. Oh, I'm sorry, Debbie LaProvade. She's a tough, no-holds-barred FBI veteran who has spent the past 25 years finding corruption in all corners of the globe. Debbie's career is impressive, illustrious, and at times sounds like it came out of a movie I'm thinking we should turn this podcast into a TV show. You know, as long as I can have the starring role, of course. As a seasoned FBI agent, Debbie was in the middle of the response on September 11, 2001.
1: Every FBI agent worked 9-11 because no matter what you were working before, it doesn't matter. Now you're working terrorism because there's been assault on the United States. I was working white collar as a recovery at the time. We're standing in a supervisor's office, watching the TV after the first plane struck. And of course, then you think it's a horrendous plane accident. And then the second plane hit the second tower. And then the plane hit the Pentagon. You're like, okay, everything just changed, right? The United States is under attack. Of course, we didn't know about Shanksville, the fourth plane at that time. I was called, and they said, go home, get into tactical gear, respond to the Pentagon. So I drive the half hour home, I change out of business apparel into like my combat boots, my range pants, my FBI ray jacket, and I head to the Pentagon. So you can imagine, it's on fire. There's Fairfax County Police, there's Arlington Police, there's a the Pentagon, there's military police, there's FBI agents. Where's the command post? Okay. You're talking a million gallons of water being poured into your crime scene. So agents were tracking the water to see if, if, you know, things from the plane. Hani Hanjour was the pilot of the plane that flew into the Pentagon. There was enough of Hani's jeans left that we were able to get a receipt out of his pocket. We couldn't go into the building because it was on fire until a structural engineer said it was okay, like till the fire was put out and we could go in. So I was like, okay, what do you need me to do? And they said, start interviewing people. What did you see? What kind of aircraft was it? The building's on fire. People are bleeding. People are being triaged. Medical groups are there. People are being brought out of the Pentagon. So many people were incinerated within the Pentagon with the fireball that came through. It's chaos. I was there till midnight. They said, go home because you're on the 6 a.m. shift. Report to uh, headquarters tomorrow. I went home, I got some sleep. For the next six months, I was working 16 hour days. It would be 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. But you get there a half hour early and you stay a half hour later so that you got briefed in the morning and you could debrief in the afternoon. That means an hour before that to get into D.C. and a half hour before that to get up, take a shower. And so I literally was working 16 hours a day, one day off a week for six months. And I had two dogs. And at the time, I just didn't have a good infrastructure, like support system where somebody could take my dogs. I would get home at 7 at night, and my dogs wanted to go out, and I was so tired. I made the decision. I I gave up my dogs for adoption. On the one day off, I'd call my kid at night. My daughter was older by then. And then I'd spend my Sundays, my day off, with my daughter. You'd be so tired, like you'd miss your exit driving home. How do I get home from here? (laughs) Once you get to work, it's like, okay, who are the 19 hijackers? Who was funding them? Where did the money come from? At work, you're getting... Intel, intel, intel. If you were on the command post, you have people calling you saying things like the people upstairs had a party on 9/11 and they're Muslims and you're like, "Well, let me go talk to them." But it was their daughter's wedding or something or, or their son's birthday party. They weren't celebrating 9/11. But you'd get there and because 15 different neighbors called about them, 15 different FBI agents got called to respond to that And so those poor people stopped answering their door. And you would see that there's 14 other FBI agents' cards. And you'd call back and say, you know, I'm not knocking on these people's doors. It's like 15 agents have already been here today. By the time it was Sunday, my daughter and I would do something fun. And it was the mental relief and and break that you needed from that high intensity. Somebody asked me once, what was it like working the command post and investigating 9-11? And I said, imagine, if you will, somebody sitting across from you with a basket, like a laundry basket full of ping pong balls. And each ping pong ball is a tidbit of information and they're throwing them at you. Know this, know this, know this, know this, know this. And you're like bombarded with this information. Okay, the money went here. Who is this guy? Who is Hani Hanjour? Who is Nawaf al-Hazmi? Who are the 19 hijackers? Did you know that there's four poor people in the United States named Muhammad Ada? Well, that was one of the hijackers. Well, the four other guys aren't, but they have his name and and they're being delved into. And then what did we know and where did the money come from? So I'm on the command post and people are calling saying things like, oh, I think the hijackers parachuted off at the last minute. And I'm like, well, the plane was going 536 miles an hour when it hit the World Trade Center and it was videotaped and no, ma'am, you know, you would have seen if they had parachuted off every one of those calls could be important, could be a clue. So you talk to every single one of them and you treat with them with respect. This level of, if I don't know something, am I not doing my job? It was six months of intense investigation. To this day, you know, look at the security, how it's impacted every person that travels around the world.
2: Debbie created the FBI's kleptocracy division on her own and has spent decades tracking the corruption of the world's most powerful people.
1: Lazarenko was my first case, right? 2003, I get that case. I get a phone call. 2006 was when I got the Abacha case. December of 2007, I get a phone call from my good friend, Linda Samuel. Linda was the chief of the asset forfeiture money laundering section at DOJ.
2: So she's a prosecutor.
1: Yeah, she's a prosecutor. A
2: heavyweight, obviously, she's the boss.
1: Linda called me and she's like, Debbie, we have a request from the government of Bangladesh. They would like us to help them fight corruption in their country, because if they could get some of these people prosecuted, their law prohibited them from running for office again. In the US, you know, we're a member a signer on the UN Convention Against Corruption. We want to help our foreign partners. We talked to, you know, my management at the FBI and they're like, yeah, this, this is a good thing. Weeks later, Linda and I were on the 20 hour flight from Washington, Dulles to Dhaka, Bangladesh.
2: 20 hours, yeah. that is far. I mean, I flew from LA to Shanghai, that was 12 hours. That was kind of far. Do you have jet lag when you arrive? That is a long flight.
1: It's a long flight. You fly from Dallas to Doha, Qatar is 15 hours. And you get there at like two in the morning, your next flight's a couple hours later, nothing's open. Hmm, I guess I can't eat lunch, it's two in the morning and trying to find a place to even sit down because I didn't have access to a lounge or anything at the time. No first
2: class Uh, lounge for the FBI?
1: No, I did not fly first class. Then it was another five hours to Dhaka, Bangladesh. I arrived in Bangladesh, wonderful people, an FBI or DOJ person met Linda and I at the airport. What does Bangladesh look like? If you had to picture it to somebody who's never been in Bangladesh, I'd say it's, it's kind of a mix between going to either India or Pakistan. It's bordered between the two, right? right? Some women are in saris, but there's also modern, you know, Western wear, business suits, and traffic. Oh my goodness. Things you take for granted here, but when we would stop and get stuck in traffic, there would be 20 beggars around our car. There are people that are blind. People that are missing limbs. There are women who have had acid thrown on them, oh, it's and they're—they're—you know—they're all asking for taka, which is the Bangladeshi currency. they are paved roads. This is Dhaka's their capital city. You know, high-rise buildings. But I've never been where my car is surrounded by people begging. You want to help, but you can't help 20 people. If—if if it was one, you might be able to hand a little money. But that would be worse, right? I mean, because then your car is surrounded again. It was hurtful to sit there knowing that you couldn't help them all or help any because, you know, if you roll down the window, how do you pick which one to give a little money to? I remember asking somebody, I said, I've seen so many people without limbs. Is that industrial work? Is it birth defects? What is it? And they're like, look, if you work and you get an infection in your hand and, and it's amputated, I mean, they don't have surgeons that are gonna be doing you know, like replacement surgery or a lot of people don't have access to great medication. So they might amputate the limb.
2: That's really sad.
1: It's very noisy. It's not just cars. You might look out the window and there's somebody pulling a cart. There's also cars, then there's teak-teaks, and then then there's uh, mopeds. It's madness, it's chaos on the roads. Traffic was a major problem.
2: Especially after a a 20-hour flight, you must have been exhausted.
1: I can tell you honestly that there were many times where I'm sitting in a car, I'm with one of my Bangladesh colleagues, and I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna fall asleep. Wake me up when we get wherever we're going, but I I couldn't stay awake, because I was off, you know, way off my schedule. Right. I'd fall asleep until we got where we were going. We're going to check in with the U.S. Embassy. Of course, the embassy sent Bob to pick us up. We're going to check in with the embassy, this is who we are, this is what we're here, this is what our mission is. And then immediately we're going to go meet with, like, our counterparts, the Ministry of Justice, who has requested aid from the United States. At the time, the government was uh, being run by a military caretaker government. And so I was meeting with the military. I was meeting with military intelligence investigators. Look, we will help you fight corruption in your country. We won't go after one party. We are going after everybody. The U.S. won't help if our aid, if our assistance is being manipulated to only go after your opposition party or to keep you in power. We won't do that.
2: How much money was stolen by Bangladesh? Are you there to recover the assets and find out where the money
1: is? I am, but this case is a little different because it wasn't one person. Initially, I got three or four cases.
2: Three or four cases about Bangladesh.
1: About Bangladesh, And to track
2: the money or find out that these people are corrupt and really identify how they did it?
1: Exactly, because the request from Bangladesh was, could you help us fight corruption in our country because... We want to try to clean up the status of corruption. If we prosecute some of these officials for corruption, they won't be able to run for office again.
2: Here it could be anybody that's corrupt and you have to figure out how they did it.
1: What was very interesting is right at the time that I was getting, Linda and I go over to Bangladesh, Siemens, the German company, came forward and self-disclosed. The United States has a law, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, where it is against the law for U.S. corporations or the, anybody on the New York Stock Exchange, their U.S. subsidiaries, to pay bribes to get contracts. Siemens wanted to be on the New York Stock Exchange. So they came forward and said, we have bribed 100 countries. They came forward and they said, this is who we bribed and this is how we paid them.
2: Who is Siemens? What did they do?
1: It's a German company and they have multiple subsidiaries, but they do everything from telecom projects, railroad projects. I mean, they're just a huge company out of Germany. You'll see signs driving around in California or in Northern Virginia, Siemens on the side. Maybe they're doing security, like security electronic systems. They're just a huge company with a myriad of different countries. They were getting different contracts.
2: So let me get this straight. They want to go public on the New York Stock Exchange. So they self-disclose that they've bribed hundreds of countries around the world. That seems a little bit odd to me. Is that normal?
1: It is better to self-disclose than to be caught. That's what my mom says about confessional. Sure, so, right? but I mean, if they uh, aren't uh, they admitting that they were part of a crime? Oh yeah, I mean, it doesn't excuse them from prosecution. Doesn't mean that they won't be heavily fined. All of those things happened.
2: And how do they self-disclose? What is that process?
1: They come forward to either the Department of Justice or to the Securities and Exchange Commission. A lawyer for the company comes forward and says, look, we would like to self-disclose. And by the way, we've cleaned up our act. And what they disclosed is that uh, for a long time, Siemens executives used off the book slush funds, slush fund accounts and shell companies they used that to facilitate bribes in countries to secure contracts and they would hire on the ground consultants as a way to move money in these slush funds to officials in exchange for being awarded lucrative contracts within those countries
2: so all along they knew what they were doing
1: oh yeah sometimes they'll come forward and say oh well it was you know a rogue employee or something like that but in this case you know when you're talking 100 countries Siemens came forward and said, and it was country by country, this is who we bribed, this is the contract we got, this is what we did, this is how the money was moved. One of those countries was Bangladesh.
2: Siemens, if you need a new guy to run everything, I'll happily do it. Of course, it's got to be above board, and I'll do it for half of what you paid your fine, but not a penny less.
1: While they were self-disclosing, they were providing us evidence of like the emails that they used, the bribes, what bank accounts the money moved through, I walked into one of the rooms at the FBI, and there were a hundred notebooks, each one with the name of a different country. I could go over and pick up Venezuela and go, OK, here's the bribes that they pay to Venezuela. Oh, ooh, I know I need the Bangladesh notebook.
2: This has to be like winning the lottery when they come forward because they're disclosing all this great evidence.
1: Well, yes. If you're looking at the person who awarded the contract or got the bribe, They can deny all they want. They're like, oh, I never took a bribe from Siemens. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The person paying the bribe is saying, yes, we bribed these people. And obviously, we got this contract. Oh, by the way, here are the bank records that show how we moved the money to the consultant who moved the money to you. Here's the emails where we're discussing how we're going to pay the bribe. Here's the slush fund. The money moved through a bank account in Austria. You can deny it all you want. But when the person who's paying the bribe has all the evidence... Uh, it's very difficult for somebody to say, I never accepted a bribe. So Siemens had bid on a $40 million telecom contract. What we found is that it was actually originally $80 million. Different companies were bribing different people. So the contract was split into two $40 million contracts. Huawei out of China got one of the contracts and Siemens out of Germany got the other contract. I did try to investigate the possible bribes played by China, but I contacted the FBI agent in Beijing and I said, you know, there's an anti-corruption commission in Beijing. Would they help me investigate these bribes by Huawei? And they said, um, no. They're like, oh, we're getting ready for the first Beijing Olympics. And Huawei is a state-owned company. You won't get assistance out of this. I said, well, you know, yeah, I have to do what I can do. And what I can do is Siemens is telling me that we bribed uh, to get this contract. So I started looking at, okay, how were they bribed? Siemens provided me bank records, the copies of emails where there's discussions about whose palms have to be greased for the contracts to be awarded. I started tracing the money, and some of the money was going to one of the sons of the former prime minister, Kalidicea.
0: I can kind of see you there, Good to see you. Good to hear your voice.
1: I'll tell you, doing audio makes fighting corruption look easy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm just surprised he's like not in Timbuktu.
0: (laughs) Well, my wife works for the university here. And so, you know, we were living overseas, but eventually you got to, you got to calm down.
2: This is David Montero. David is a foreign correspondent specializing in corruption in South Asia. He's written for the New York Times, and he's been nominated for an Emmy Award twice. Not bad, I've been nominated once. Twice is pretty darn good.
0: I had always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I had studied Islamic history in college, and I thought I would actually go to the Middle East, but it turned out that a friend of mine's father ran the largest English language newspaper in Bangladesh, which is called the Daily Star, it still exists. And he offered me to come and work at the Daily Star. It sounded like an incredible experience because I knew a little bit about Bangladesh. I had Bangladeshi friends, but I didn't know a lot. I remember distinctly that when I arrived, I arrived at an incredible blanket of fog. A friend of mine was picking me up at the airport and I came out from the airport and through the fog, just started piecing together this landscape I'd never seen before he took me in his car and we started driving and again, you know, the fog started dissipating and I just started seeing people working on the street. It, it was probably five o'clock in the morning in Bangladesh in the morning. There are almost like armies of people who come out to sweep and clean the streets. It left a, a really vivid impression for me of a poor country, but a beautiful country. There were rice paddies, there were palm trees. The the infrastructure of Bangladesh, it's not up to the standards, let's say, of the West, but it it, it was really beautiful and, and really striking. Right after I arrived is when the country basically fell into this kind of period of unbelievable chaos and instability. The country basically was imploding because of two things, corruption and Islamist militancy. The longer I lived there and kept reporting, I realized the two were linked. And I stumbled upon this story involving corporate bribes and and a corporation called Siemens, which we've all heard of. That's eventually what led me to Deb and her work. I kind of saw firsthand the fallout in these countries um, when big corporations are paying bribes. And how did you first meet Deb? What was that first meeting like? Actually, I have a very vivid memory that I had set up a meeting, uh, a background meeting with the FBI's kleptocracy initiative and FCPA unit. And they invited me to come to their office in Washington. And I had read about Deb and she was kind of like a legend in my mind. You know, I had been going through all these hundreds of pages of court documents and kept coming across her name on affidavits and things. And I was thinking, God, I've got to meet this woman, Deb. So I walked into that office in the FBI and... I saw a woman sitting on one of those rubber balls that people use for chairs sometimes. She was bouncing up and down and shouting to the whole office, I just got seven more subpoenas. And I had never (laughs) seen anyone so excited about that kind of work. But that was what was really amazing about Deb. She's a force, full of life. And she's just so driven, but also having a really good time. That was what really struck me. (laughs) She's having a really good time investigating money laundering and some really, really bad people.
1: I'm just going to chime in about my blue ball.
0: (laughs) We want to know about your blue ball, Debbie. Please tell us.
1: Yes. So I had a great big giant Exercise ball, like a yoga ball that I used instead of a chair, so that while I was sitting down, I could also work my core. (laughs) But it also keeps people from sticking stuff in your chair, like walking by and putting documents (laughs) on your chair. (laughs) If it's a ball, nobody does that. Myself and several other agents found that it was very productive to sit on a ball while typing and investigating. Like you could go out to lunch or walk to get a cup of coffee and you come back and there's like a stack of documents in your chair. (laughs) You're like, okay, who put these here and what do I need to do with them? Do I have to read these? Do I have to go through them? It could have been my seven subpoenas uh, coming in from the United (laughs) States Attorney's Office. You all don't know how long I may have waited to get those subpoenas. And of course, I can't get records without those subpoenas.
2: We hear about in the news these these corporations getting fined hundreds of millions. A lot of the banks, this hits the banks, are billions of dollars. Yet it just seems like it's the cost of doing business. They pay these bribes, they get away with it for years, and then they get fined, and they kind of write it off as a liability and, and, a, and a tax write off. And it's and it's frankly the uh, the stockholders that end up just paying the price. How
0: do we actually make these corporate CEOs accountable? It's a really really convoluted picture and question to answer but it's true that evidence to show that a particular CEO or manager was directly involved and aware of the bribery is often difficult to find though the FBI does an incredible job of finding emails and other records but it's often really really difficult to pin that on particular individuals convincing a jury in a court of law I think is also difficult these cases are so complicated they are designed to be hidden from the public and from law enforcement and people do a pretty good job at that. Even if you have evidence and you bring it to court, it can be really, really trying and you need somebody like an FBI agent to speak to a jury to explain some of the things that are going on. So there is difficulty, there's a high threshold of material that you need. I think the fines could be a lot stronger. We've seen that consistently over the years, that the the corporations end up paying about 1% of their market value in fines. A billion dollars is a lot of money to Siemens, but relative to its $100 billion market fine, it's not a lot. It has an impact, thank God for these fines, but until they get much bigger and people go to jail, it's true, I think these corporations basically see it as a cost of doing business.
1: In a lot of the FCPA cases, what you'll find is a deferred prosecution. So the company pleads guilty and they pay these you know, huge fines. But in many cases, like what we found with the banks that were found uh, to have knowingly laundered money and to, to facilitate bribes, their fines ended up being one or two days of revenue for a company. That is a problem is just a very challenging aspect. To bring it up to a jury, what they don't see is how the bribe was paid. And Siemens was an excellent example. If you're looking up money laundering and uh, how a company pays bribes, they don't pay bribes directly to a minister necessarily. In Siemens, what we found is that they would hire people that were considered on the ground consultants and funnel money to these consultants. But the job of those consultants was to get political people on board. So we would be able to trace money into the bank accounts of these on the ground consultants who then took that money, made sure that it got into the hands of those politically connected people that could make sure that a contract was awarded. And the Siemens contract was a $40 million telecom project.
0: In Bangladesh alone, Siemens used several middlemen, but I think around the world they used like 2,800 men and women like this to pay these bribes in a hidden way. I had this notion that, you know, there were hundreds of FBI agents working on Bangladesh. I thought it was like the full force of the FBI is doing this story. And when I met her, I realized it's dead. The people who are fighting corruption around the world are almost literally a handful. And they're people, they have to get on a plane. They have to fly to Bangladesh. They have to do this work, you know, grinding, grinding. That's also the human level of it because the corporations involved have so much money and are paying so much money. The people receiving this money have so much money. The kleptocracy involves so much money. It's a group of people getting on planes going around the world and trying to stop it. I think it's grown over the years, but it's just, it comes down to a few individuals.
1: David, can you tell me, like, since you live there long term, did you see how corruption impacts the day-to-day operation of just living in Bangladesh?
0: But yeah, I mean, it's the first thing is just you see, as you noticed, Deborah, you know, this stark contrast between rich and poor. There are enclaves in Dhaka that are where the wealthiest people, who also happen to be some of the corruptest people, have fabulous apartments, penthouse apartments. They have really nice cars, sort of like doormen building. But then a few blocks away, it's literally corrugated steel shanty towns where people are struggling to, to live. Bangladesh is actually a wealthy country. It's rich in natural resources. It has natural gas. It has a very, very hard working population, a striving middle class. You see the impact of corruption because that wealth is just not being shared on on the most basic level. There are not a lot of jobs. You have to be politically connected to get good jobs. And the wealth from natural gas, from telecom, from other things is just, is not being passed down to ordinary people. If you go to pay a bill, you know, you can bribe somebody to cut a line so that at least you're not waiting in a six-hour line, if you're a poor person, to pay a bill. It's that typical thing that happens in a country like that, that. if You have to wait as a person on the street for a long time to deal with the state, to pay utilities and other things, unless you have money and you, you're connected and you can skip those lines literally and figuratively. It it's bribery from the level of the street all the way up to the prime minister's palace. If you're a Bangladeshi citizen and you're stopped by the police, it's just routine that if you give them a small, you know, buck cheese, they would say like a tip. Of course, no one ever calls it a bribe. You know, you can sort of get off. You can sort of skirt the law, but you have to be in a position to pay the police.
1: The police officers on the street carry a stick, and they're always whacking people in the knees as they go by on their bicycles. It's a physical, punitive measure if you don't have money to pay them a bribe. There's something very unique to Bangladesh too, is they throw acid. You'll see a lot of women who are disfigured. It's because they had acid thrown in their face. As a female in that being in Bangladesh, it was one of my concerns is that I would have acid thrown at me because it happens unfortunately all too frequently.
2: Siemens spent over $5 million bribing officials in the Bangladeshi government to secure a mobile phone contract. One of the beneficiaries was the telecommunications minister who was supportive of the country's most
0: violent extremist group. This minister's name was Aminul Haque, haq and he was the head of the telecommunications ministry in Bangladesh from 2001 until 2004. So you have to remember at that time, cell phones in Bangladesh were just starting to explode. This was a multi-billion dollar industry. And all the foreign companies in the world wanted it. They all wanted a big piece of the multi-billion dollar telecom industry in Bangladesh, which was just exploding. So you had Telenor, you had Ericsson, Motorola, all these big companies vying for a piece of the pie. He was not himself an extremist, a religious person, But he was clearly willing to use extremism from the level of thugs to the level of uh, militants to kill his enemies, literally. He was the the minister in a part of Bangladesh that's in, in the Northwest, and he was famous for backing militant groups that beheaded, killed, otherwise tortured political opponents. So he had quite a fierce reputation, and it was crazy that he was the face of modernization in Bangladesh at the same time that Bangladeshi journalists were exposing that he was connected to these militant groups, so the face of terrorism and the face of modernization of one person. He kind of spoke to this really frightening dynamic whereby corruption and militancy and extremism and destability were all fusing at the highest levels of government because people were getting rich and they didn't want to let go of that money. And so they started contracting militant groups to create violence. When the minister's
2: corruption was eventually exposed, instead of facing up to decades in jail for his crimes, he went underground into hiding.
0: How do you approach a guy like this? He had also gone into hiding. I, you know, kind of looked for him had addresses where his family had lived we went to the ancestral town where his family was from we went to their house and we talked to some of the people who worked there like the servants the family wasn't home and they found out about it they got really upset at us at that point and said you know how dare you come to our ancestral home and speak to people who worked for us without asking our permission you know we were very vulnerable at that point being in this far flung part of Bangladesh just been threatened by the family kind of felt like we need to hightail it out here because people in the area had been already been killed as i mentioned dozens of people were tortured killed many of them were beheaded i remember my colleague and i being like wow <laughs> you know we sort of shook the rattlesnest there and, and they're really upset you know that's part of the job you'll just have to take it doing this stuff and uncovering this corruption it's a sign you're doing the right thing that this family is coming after you. Nonetheless, it feels very personal. They knew who you were. I also got on the phone with this former head of intelligence and he was really upset with me. He knew my name. Who are you? Who do you think you are? You're a foreigner in this country. What right do you have? It's not, by any means it's not a pleasant feeling. I remember the first beheading in Bangladesh. It was in 2004. It was a young man who I I featured in my book named Manwar, who was killed by extremists in the town where this minister ruled, killed by extremists that he controlled. And it was shocking to everybody in the country. There had been violence in Bangladesh. There had been killings. There had been political strife. But no one had ever been beheaded. It really signaled uh, that things had turned very dire. Manwar was only 20 years old.
2: Next on a Nation for Thieves to, to
0: meet the. I'm sorry, it's still so hard to meet the father of of someone who's been killed like that. The the pain is still instant for him, and um, so so broken, so sad.
2: A Nation for Thieves is narrated by myself, Justin Shankaro, with Deborah LaPravat. Produced by Charlie Webster and Jackson McClennan. Edited by Nicholas Palella. Music by Sean Hedinger. Executive producers Charlie Webster, Justin Shankaro, Stephen Neely, and Deborah LaPravat. Audio provided by Veritone and free tours by Foot London. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.